Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. I'm Theodore Lowry, and I like stories that make up our history because history lives in the present. And by hearing about history from those who've lived through it, we can see that not only now, but at all times in the past, humans have been a creative, gifted, troubled, beautiful species. And this is our legacy. And I thought, because this is one of the first original episodes of this podcast, I'd interview my mum, who had a hand in my own origin, and who has a broad and deep perspective on all these things. Welcome to the Story Paths podcast. We're living in a time where there's a tremendous amount of interaction between different stories. And I wanted to ask you about your experience with that, really, like growing up in England, in the British way of seeing things largely, and then being part of the baby boomer generation, mm. where there's many breaks from tradition, you know, mm -hmm. and what it was like for you and what made you do that, you know, going to Africa and, you know, living, moving to Canada and, you know, what was it about what was given from the previous generations that you didn't feel was enough? For you, you know, mm. if that's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but mm. you know, what, you know, why not just settle down and get married and have kids in that mm. place, you know, or at least yeah. in some nearby town in Britain or something. Right. And, uh, yeah. And your experience, you know, what brought you to Africa, such a different place and what, what, what you still bring with you from your roots and what you've learned from other cultures. And, and then kind of finally, in this time where we've got almost chaotically overmeshing of, of cultures, what it's like for you after, after going through your life to, to be living in this time, the kind mm. of, you know, the, the good parts and the somewhat frightening parts as well. That covers quite a lot of ground. It covers quite a lot of ground, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> decades and decades. Yeah, I guess I guess you know, kind of broad themes, and I mean, we can kind of go through it at a bit at a time if you'd like. That's but that's what I was thinking to to talk to you about and to ask you about. That sounds fine. Yeah. Yeah, I've given that quite a bit of thought in a way because I've been doing some writing over this COVID time, mm -hmm. writing down some stories from my younger years, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, thinking about them. I lie in bed thinking about them, all this story about what I, you know, what happened and bring it back again. Mm. And then I get up and write it. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's actually been on my mind. Yeah, so, so it's been interesting that, um, because it's just what I've been doing quite a bit. Mm. And exchanging stories with Barbara too from our childhood. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of laughs, you know, sort of like details that no one else in the world knows that mm -hmm. the two of us are saying. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's, been, uh, it's been a lovely way to get together. Mm. Uh, so it's interesting that this should come up. Do you want, 
how do you want to work it? Do you want to ask me questions or? Sure. I mean, we could sort of go chronologically. I think that would make sense. You know, if we go through, um, you could talk a bit about your childhood and maybe what, how, what it was like, what kind of, what England was like at the time. Um, what, I mean, of course there's generalizations here, but kind of what people's outlook was at the time. I mean, yeah, that, that was after World War II. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I think from, from what you've described, it sounded like there was a certain unity. Everyone was rebuilding together and, you know, on the same page in many ways. I, yeah. And yeah. What, what that was like and, and then, yeah, what made you want to travel? What, what made, and you and the baby boomer generation, like what, what was mm. it that drew you from there? Well, I, I can just start from my childhood and what sort of hit the high points. Sort of yeah, thing. that sounds good. Yeah. Or, or what do my memories bring back? Yeah. Because I was born in, um, 1947. So the war, had only been over, really over a couple of years. Mm. And there was still, I mean, ration cards around and um, a lot of um, destruction in cities and so on. But I don't remember that as a child. Um, and um, my, my father, I wish you had known him, he was a he, um, while he was at, while he was away at war, he was in the RAF. Um, his mother had drunk away all his um, salary, which arrived in form, you know, checks from the government, because soldiers and so on got paid, so that when they got home, they would have something in the bank, you know, to start their lives. But he didn't. He had nothing. She she'd used it all up. And so they started their lives in um, with very little. It's not as if everyone else was wealthy, but they had. We 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 lived in the bottom of of bottom floor of a house, an old house that we rented, and um, there wasn't any bedrooms. It was just a room, a living room. I slept in the kitchen, which was a galley, like a long, narrow kitchen. I had to put the bed in it every night. As I remember, that's a memory I have of putting, setting up this crib in this galley. You couldn't walk past it. It was very narrow. Putting this mattress that gradually took on my shape as I grew. <laughs> and there was, um, we put shillings in a meter for, for gas. It was we cooked with gas, and the meter was above my head when I lay on this cot at night. And um, one night, a burglar came in to empty our meter. Mm. He must have had, he must have known that it would be full because it was full. And he got all these shillings out, and I lay in bed, half aware that he was there. It was fairly terrifying, and. Of course, in the morning, we found out the meter was empty, which was pretty significant for us because um, <laughs> we didn't have very many more shillings. Mm. <laughs> so, but I guess what's really important is, yes, it was, the war was over. And there were, I mean, I was very young, but as I got a bit, as I got a little older, or as I look back on it, I realize there was a tremendous coming together, that people were finally through this terrible time mm. where so much horror had happened and loss and death, dislocation and so on. And they were, people were getting married and, you know, the young people who had been fighting, like my father, all got married. They got married in borrowed clothes. They didn't have any wedding clothes, and they took 
flowers from people's gardens and and they were they I think they had a lot of joy. Hmm. They was it was like starting up. And uh, all these people were in the same boat, really, unless unless the man had been killed or whatever. But um, and the government, they elected a government that was really an excellent government, and it looked, it said, you know, what do we need to do at this point? We're going to have a new generation of children coming along, and they will need a really good education because they are our future. They want them to have an education they don't have to pay for, that they will can take advantage of, right through to as far as they want to go. Mm. And we want them to be healthy, so we'll give them free orange juice, milk, and castor oil, which is pretty dreadful. And um, so they'll be healthy. <laughs> And uh, it was a, a it was a time of um, courage, uh, but happiness. I think. Um, I mean, I was I was of course pretty young at, at the beginning of all this, but um, being the baby boomer generation, because of course I was, and it was a huge generation. Children were being born all over the place. And um, schools were full, and a lot of teachers were fairly old because the young ones might have been killed, uh, had, would have been teachers. So we had some old teachers, teachers that might have retired if, if unless they were, because they were asked to come back. But um, old-fashioned, but... Um, Used to, then when I went to grammar school, which was like the high school, they would wear these huge robes, um, you know, like you have a cap and gown, gowns. They didn't wear the cap, but they wore gowns and they, um, had a strict discipline. And but they were all part of the team of making this generation of children well educated. Mm. And I always felt. Very lucky, especially when I look back. I mean, I felt, and they weren't perfect or anything like that, but they were very well intentioned and um, it's hard to look from the point of view of a child because, you know, you're just an innocent, you don't really, you just take what comes along. But I look back on that time and realize that that was what was going on. So we we didn't have very much stuff. We didn't have a car. We didn't have. We we went around on bicycles everywhere. Old bicycles. My mother made all our clothes in the sewing machine, on the manual sewing machine. It's kind of like India. <laughs> And um, we made do, and my mother and father were a great team, really. My mother didn't go to work. Women had to go back to being housewives, and, uh, which was hard for her because, like a lot of women, she really enjoyed the war. It was the first time she'd had these whole new experiences. Um, it was very exciting. She wasn't in danger. She was working in Liverpool in what they called a ship in dry dock. It just sat in the dock and it was used as a meeting place for all the top um, Navy people, the admirals and so on, would come. She was part of the group that put on, looked after them, put on their dinners and so on. So for her, it was a tremendous adventure. Mm. And then it was over, no more adventure. <laughs> <laughs> to be a housewife. <laughs> I think she was a I think she really felt a bit um bad about that and she regretted that the war didn't uh, not that she wanted the war to continue, of course, but that she could have gone on and had another adventure maybe. 
wasn't the worst. But for me, in my life, there were plenty of adventures. Nobody was telling me I had to get married and have children and stay stuck in one place. I had in my heart and in my... I just wanted adventures. So as I got older, I was able to go to university when I was three, was, and I wanted to get away from Slough, where I was living, as far as possible, so I went to the other side of the country in Exeter, in the west, western, southwest of England, and that was where the adventure started. Life on my own, I think I was really excited to do that. And as I was thinking about my um, young adulthood, what drove me was was adventures. Hmm. I I just wanted to uh, see everything in the world. I wanted to not just be a tourist, but to live somewhere and be there and find out what it was like and maybe learn some of the language or work there. And, you know, I wanted... So, I, I mean, I started off when I was 17. I went to France and worked as an au pair, which is a looking after children. But it was a way, I, something I could do. I was 17. I went off on my own and uh, lived in France and had a lot of adventures looking after these children and learning French because my French teacher at my school, he, he as I say, they were old-fashioned teachers. Really all they could do was translations from English to French or French to English, mm-hmm. <laughs> writing. <laughs> he couldn't speak any French, couldn't open his mouth and speak in French. And he didn't know any. Just so... Going to France was all about learning to speak French, hear it, and, and uh, I loved it. Um, and then when I was 19, I was already at university, and I, in the break between first year and second year, I went off to America. And it was um, kind of a madcap adventure. I mean, I was... Always reading. My, my life has always been absolutely jammed with books and stories. And so I wanted to do what people did in books, you know, went off somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I had heard about America. When you were in England in, after the war, which is everything was rather still old-fashioned in a way, you know, although we quickly had the Beatles in the 60s and all the rest of them. So... That was when everything let loose. But um, America seemed to be a land of fantasy and where you could get anything you wanted, extraordinary machines and appliances and food and I don't know. It was so different from England, which was still somewhat... um, People ate what they had, what they'd grown in their garden and a bit, you know, we didn't have packaged stuff or canned stuff. We longed for it. We knew that it existed, but we didn't have it. (laughs) Things in packages. We just had, like in India, you grew, right? You farmed, you um, and uh, so America was like wonderland to British people. And I went over um, on my own and um, had this uh, extraordinary adventure in America for three months. Um, I can't tell the whole story of that now. I have written it down. But it, it ended up with me being quite hungry um, waiting for the plane to return to Britain because hmm. I'd run out of money and um, I worked there in New York but I then I went traveling on Greyhound bus 
What did you work doing there? I worked on... Um, well, it was in those days, um, anybody with an English accent was considered, this is the American viewpoint now, Amer- British people didn't think themselves that way, but Brit- Americans thought it, would, it was sort of like Anglophiles, they thought it was something superior, or, hmm. which surprised me a lot, because we just certainly didn't feel that way. Um, and I lined up in this... Um, Line up for people who are unemployed, which was mostly black people and Spanish-speaking people, and and me, you know. And I was given a job because I I was English. And the job was something I had no idea how to do, but it didn't matter. Which was they were tearing down this um, very this old hotel in the middle of New York City. On Fifth Avenue, and uh, they were going to replace it with a higher, bigger one. I'm sure, they did, but they every every floor had the same furniture in it, and furnishings and pictures and everything all looked identical. So every 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 floor was brought down to the big ballroom to be sold to people who came. To buy it because they because it had a it was famous this hotel mm. and it was a big ballroom with a grand piano and somebody would play Hobie Carmichael anyway Carmichael he played anyway it was a famous pianist everybody knew and they came and I was employed to help people buy furniture. And so I would make up stories about this furniture. <laughs> it was a, everything was a sort of opportunity to make up stories because nobody knew who I was, or I wasn't actually an expert in furniture. In <laughs> fact, I didn't know the first thing about furniture. And at home, we hardly had any furniture. <laughs> but here was all this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It was all this sort of fancy French furniture, you know. So I did speak some French, of course, and I'd learned that when I was 17. And um, I would uh, go into some big spiel about how this Louis Cairns uh, couch <laughs> would go extremely well with an orange um, couch, you know, an orange chair or something, or some, some such thing. I said, you know, it was very stylish. I would make it up and I'd really get into it. And they were so impressed. So it, so it, you know, goaded me on to do even more. <laughs> and I would sell all this furniture to these people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just the Americans themselves seemed so, like another, another race entirely from British. A lot of people were very thin and very heavily made up, the women and tanned like they, they would go to Florida or something where they had false tanning on or I, I was like, like a race of aliens really they seemed to me and uh, so I had great fun doing that and selling and furniture to the aliens I was, yeah I was extremely <laughs> fortunate because I could have been killed I didn't I could have been Robbed. Not that I had anything to rob, but I was renting a room for two dollars a night hmm. in a place called Needle Square. I no, I didn't know that it was called Needle Square. Anyone else would have known immediately because it was a drug area. But I didn't know drugs. I didn't know about drugs. Hmm. <laughs> There's all these people staggering around in the street. I would. It was one of those great big buildings with the fire escape going up the outside. Hmm. You know, it was. It's like a, you know, the outside fire escape. Yeah. So um, I got, I was on fairly high floor. I would look down at um, people walking into the traffic, and it's really strange. It was like uh, I should have been quite afraid, but I wasn't. I, I didn't have that in my, as my being that time. To be afraid. I don't think I do yet, actually. 
Anyway, I was getting back to my room one day after my stint selling furniture, and um, as I opened the door, these pair of legs jumped out of the window onto the fire escape. I had been in my room <laughs> and dropped this dagger. It, I can only, it's just a dagger, this enormous knife with a rope handle, which he dropped. And I thought, well, at that point, I thought, well, it was good timing. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I possessed was a little tiny transistor radium. Hmm. And he took that. Uh-huh. And um, that's all I had. So it was a kind of a case of innocence getting you through. Hmm. Ignorance, innocence, I don't know. So that was another adventure. Yeah, and how was it returning to England after after being abroad? This is before you went to Africa as well, isn't it? Yeah, this is I'm still at university. So we had a break, three months. And then the, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and because I had this lovely big fat grant, which I was given, hmm. I had saved it up, and that's what I used to go to America. Hmm. So I was there the whole of the summer. I was, went back in September and went back to a university. Hmm. Um, well, I think I was, um, my desire for adventure really did drive me. I mean, I, I was, well, that's what I was, that's really what I was always looking for, was another adventure, adventure, but a experience, you know, something something new and I I suppose Britain in the 40s and 50s was uh, I don't know whether that that affected me or not and that's all I knew but um, perhaps it was because I read so much of all these different people and things people did and I had no desire at all to just go and get a job and get married and, you know, seemed like the most boring thing to do, but I did have to get a job, of course. But I was really driven by this um, desire to see the world Hmm. and live in it. And I think that's why I came to Canada, really, and was I... um, Is that something that... yeah. Is that something you saw in your parents as well? Like, you said your mother had a drive for adventure as well. But she, she hers was somewhat curbed by the times, but yours was not so curbed by the times coming a little later? Yeah. Um, no, no, I don't think so. She didn't really talk about it. I mean, she... When she was an old lady, and I used to go, go over every time, every summer, September to visit her and and stay with her for two or three weeks. It was a chance to talk to her more. She was she was widowed quite young, hmm. and um, I talk talked to her about the war. She was happy to talk about it. That's when I realised what it had meant to her. But she didn't talk about it when I was young. Hmm. No, no, I it was something. In me, I mean, I my parents also always let me go, which I actually took for granted. But I think I I could have been more grateful because not every parent would let the young, rather innocent, sort of not very worldly daughter cater caper off into the world, you know, full of robbers and. <laughs> <laughs> 
accidents and all who knows what, you know. I mean, I really didn't. Nobody had a phone or anything like that. There was no way on earth to communicate with me mm. when I was in America, for example. Unless I wrote a letter, which I did, but... So it was uh, something inside me, I guess. Mm. Um, I wonder... I wonder about those times, you know. I was born in 79, as you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> in my life, from the beginning, there's quite an awareness of other other lands and the possibility of going to other lands. Mm. And I wonder if in England, that awareness was really budding in your generation. It seems like the baby boomer generation in in many ways, broke from what was going on before, broke from traditions and, you know, in terms of the roles of men and women, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, living in one's own country, uh, in terms of spirituality and, and many other things. So I wonder if, if there's something, if you think there's something... You know, what is it that in the baby boomer generation after the war and from that time of celebration, it sounds like from having gone through the war that to, to rebuild, what is it in that, in your generation that made you try such different things from your parents and from their mm -hmm. parents and mm -hmm. going back? So... It's an interesting question. It's um, because, of course, it did. It was like that. It was a, a very. It was a generation full of uh, music, for example, which was very different kind of music. Very much freer, less static. People standing on a stage, and uh, you we get into the age of rock bands, and which came out of Britain. I mean. Beatles, the Rolling Stones, these were international stars eventually. Mm. And they came from British culture. And yet they, yeah, they were, they were breaking a lot of boundaries and um, were exciting. And young people Yeah, this large young generation certainly forged its way uh, past its, its parents, and perhaps perhaps a lot of that was that was what I mean they, they had been brought up to do was to to not be just like their parents, but to be able to do more. So that was part of the intention of the I, I, previous no, I generation. Know, I don't know whether it was a conscious intention that they were given lots of opportunities, mm -hmm. and and so they took they took them. A lot of them took them. Mm -hmm. Seems like like you're saying the previous generation after the war wanted to give the young people, you know, very good education, very good opportunities. Mm. And, of course, that's a very open-ended thing. You know, if someone's given a lot of opportunities in education, you never quite know what they're going to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like, although, you know, of course, there might have been a, a bit of a clinging to tradition or a valuing mm. of tradition as well, but maybe there's also, in your parents, you're saying it, at least... Um, an acceptance that, oh, this will be very different. Mm. This generation will be very different. I don't, I don't know if they consciously thought that. Um, we certainly had far more opportunities than they did. I mean, neither of my parents... My mother finished school at 13, had to go and work in the shop, and, and my father... 
I honestly don't know what his education. He certainly didn't go to university. There was there that was right, very unusual. You had to be wealthy and hmm. before the war. You know. But now we have this unbound generation of people. I mean, we were not wealthy, a wealthy family. We were sort of in the class system. I guess we were upper working class or something. We lived in a council house, which rented from the government, and and here. Both Barbara and I um, were able to go through university, go on to do other things, and have a career, and um, have the freedom. To, and jobs were available so readily. I mean, I ended up being a teacher, which I regret in many ways because it wasn't really a choice. It was basically you were sort of channeled into that. It was the, like, the obvious thing to do, especially for a girl. Hmm. But um, nevertheless, gave gave me a career, and um, you know, I think my mother and father watching us go out into the world and have all these do all these fun things and go so much further than they did. Hmm. Um, I, my mother had quite a bit of bitterness about about not being able to mention hmm. because what it did was it separated us I said both Barbara and I had all these experiences that she never had hmm. and it was education we talked differently we talked about different things we were a bit snooty maybe we were a bit sort of looked down on these parents that were, I mean, not deliberately. Do you know, there's that come home and oh, it's a bit boring at home and they go, you know, can't wait to get back to adventure, <laughs> the world, adventure and variety. And, and they are the ones they provided us with all that, of course, and they were our parents, but we left them behind and, mm. and I really, really deeply regret that. I mm. regret being so feel like I was a bit callous about it. Do you feel like you might have described to your parents more what you were learning and attempted to include them? Well, I did. You know, I always wrote to them when I was away. Um, but you can't really get away from the fact that their lives were so much more limited than ours. We mm. quickly had a whole world at our feet, really. And um, and then my father died so young, he was only 57. Mm. And that sort of killed off any dreams they might have had of retiring and doing something different. Mm. And he... He had a heart attack, and you know, so the the remnants of his the stress in his life, and um, he was still carrying. And mm. I think there I mean, wasn't as much awareness of trauma and healing no. trauma then. Oh no, nobody talked really much about anything personal. Mm -hmm. I remember using the word cancer, my mother says, don't use that word. It was about somebody else. It was very, people were, didn't talk about personal things. Mm. So freely. So this, so a children's generation were much more free. Mm -hmm. And if they could see what we have now, what's happening now in the world, they would be shocked. They'd never even seen a computer. Mm-hmm their lives and it's not that they wanted anything different just the speed of change I think it's speeded up even in your life you know it's speeded up speeded up yeah it's, it's hard yeah. to keep pace with for anybody at this point yeah young I or find old. it <laughs> I find it too fast for me yeah I'm not interested in 
not interested in all these devices and different social media and things. I'm not interested. I find that my life was full enough already to keep me interested uh, the way it was mm. without any more adventures into the digital world. Mm. <laughs> that makes sense? Yeah, I guess, I guess that brings me to the question which is a question now as then is do you feel that something was lost that was there in previous generations uh, in the baby boom generation with that change and that explosion of possibility and yet yeah, it might have felt like you know back back at home and little old Britain and on the old street and might have felt a bit boring and small. But looking, looking back now, and it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to say yes, <laughs> but uh, looking back now, do you, do you feel there's something was there that maybe wasn't taken along into this broad future its broad possibilities hmm. traditional I suppose it's more the traditional ways that people had say before the war and then in the 50s um, before the era even of telephones Certainly television, you didn't have. Um, so there was... Uh, people did things inside their houses, you know, maybe creatively or simple things. I don't know what to say. I don't know what quite what we did. We read books. We listened to the radio, which I still do. I'm still a complete radio freak because I love listening so those I mean of course those changed because people invented new things and and moved ahead did we lose anything I think coming through the war, I, I know when when the COVID first started, around here anyway, there was this, people got this feeling suddenly that we're all in this together, that we're all actually in the, experiencing this same crisis. Mm-hmm. And for everybody, it was new. Um, but I, I'm sure it was like that during the war mm-hmm. we have the same enemy and we're all together fighting this enemy you put everything aside you, know, you plant vegetables in every, every patch of land that exists and you um, reuse everything and mm mend everything and you just get by and you send socks to the troops and you, you, you just have this massive um, feeling of certainly of being all together. So that, when I first heard that when COVID started, I thought, oh, that's really, I really liked that. People left messages everywhere on sidewalks and little stones were painted with messages and all over the streets here. Hmm. It's not there. It's not really there anymore. Well, I mean, it's a year later, but I'm sure. People, I don't know if people still feel that. But um, it was not selfishness. You know, it was the opposite. It was together, being mm-hmm. together in something rather than in competition with everyone or. So maybe that sense is not lost. It's, it, it, I think it has come back to some extent during this pandemic. 
although we've seen a lot of divisiveness as well that's emerged, but um, just what it is to be human, I suppose. But to have gone through a war, and then, you know, the men didn't talk about it. So we missed, we, did, we didn't get any of their experience. My father, like many, many men, like majority of men have been through it, did not want ever to talk about it again. It was so they wanted to move on to this new, with their family and forget it. Although they never did forget it. But. Mm. So we never really got the story of what it was like for them. Mm. I suppose I come back to what I've noticed during this last year. How people have, um, some people, not everybody, but have res- responded um, maybe because they're stuck at home or that they've taken up um, more. Uh, activities that are more involve more um, learning how to make things or do things by themselves rather than purchase everything. So people want to garden. It's like I mean, enormous numbers of people here that never gardened before. Young people um, want to are, in, are suddenly want to, are interested in gardening. Uh, it was quite a phenomenon, actually, because in the seed bank we encounter people occasionally who want to start gardening. <laughs> but now it's just this, this flood of people. And we, we can't, we're not in position to be able to teach them. Um, so I'm... I wish we could, but we can't. We can't go and be with people. There's also bread making and cooking from scratch and different. So it's it's a the crisis itself perhaps touches something in people that says, "Well, I should be more self-sufficient. I should." Um, learn more like my parents knew or my grandparents you know knew mm. uh, how to do and I don't know how to do I know how to fix anything I don't know how to grow vegetables I don't know how to I go and buy everything that we eat I don't know how to make it myself or I don't know how to play an instrument I don't know you know that that there's a sense of um, Oh, maybe maybe we've really passed all these things by, and we should go back and learn them. Mm. Whatever it is, definitely, I definitely feel that. Yeah, which I think is great. I, yeah, it, I know all this stuff about spreadsheets and video editing, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> Skype calls and Zoom, and yes. all this stuff that if electricity, internet stopped, would be totally useless. Totally, useless. no, they're not foundational skills. That's right, yes. Yeah. We're talking about the kind of skills people have when they um, are live in a self-sufficient way. Mm-hmm. Considered very ordinary in that time. Considered ordinary, yes. And even boring, like, oh, if I learned video editing, yeah. that would be really fancy yeah. and interesting. <laughs> I mean, my father grew vegetables because everybody did. Mm-hmm. And I thought, he said, I'll show you how to grow potatoes and I'll show you how I just bored. I didn't want to know. Well, guess what? <laughs> uh, that when I was, you know, thirteen, I didn't want to know. But um, I was the same way with you. I remember you yes, doing gardening uh, yeah, when I was young. Right. I saw gardening yeah. with dad. Also, he was he wanted to teach me more carpentry as well. Oh, carpentry. he would have taught you so many things. Yeah, 
I was sort of bored by it all, and now yes. I'm regretting it, and I'm picking up the picking up some of those skills with other people that I know now. Yeah, and he learned all his skills um, because he had to. Grow mm-hmm. farm, and you had to do everything. You had to build houses, you had to build a barn, you had to fix the tractor, you had to. But then he got a PhD, and he became an engineer. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's it. It makes me wonder about this whole idea of linear progress, really, because, you know, kind of up and up and technological improvement. And But I think a lot of people are seeing just how shaky it is, you know. Like, mm-hmm. wow, I can't do any of I'm like a baby. I can't, I can't, I yes. can't do the most basic things for myself yes, that that's right. everybody historically could do, you know. Yes, feeling a, a little embarrassed about a little the, embarrassed, the lack yeah. of skills. I've got all these, like, you know, sophisticated skills, but I'm... Or could I make my own clothes? We all made our own clothes. Mm-hmm. We, we longed for clothes that we could buy, but mm-hmm. we didn't get them because we had to, you know... And now it's an empowering and, thing to come back and yes, do some of those things. That's right. People will be proud and they could be creative about it. They could do it their own way and uh, um, and be proud of having produced something themselves. So mm-hmm. it seems as if the crisis has made that happen. It wasn't really happening before. Mm. It's, it's happened as a result of this crisis. Do you think there's some fear in there that maybe... You know, oh gosh, there might be interruption of supply lines coming from China or wherever my stuff's yeah. coming from. There's might tenuous be part of it. links. Yes, yes. All the things we we have been a very entitled sort of um, people who took things for granted. I, I think you know everybody really because you just went and bought it. You know, if you had the money, you just. Uh, and so, yes, the fear of, oh, it might not be available, or I, I might, I realize I don't know how to do very much stuff, or mm-hmm. other people do, or maybe my grandparents did, or, you know, I'm thinking of young people today. So, that's good, you know. And um, uh, whether it will continue, uh, I don't know, when eventually we... I don't think we'll ever get back to what we were before. I think mm. things have fundamentally changed. But when we move on, um, perhaps that will... It depends how much... I think there's also, at the same time, the whole thing about climate change is is really saying we need to live more simply. Yeah. We need to stop using everything up. Mm-hmm. We need to stop pouring fuel, fossil fuels into the air. And we need to take care of the creatures that are becoming extinct. We need to, every single part of the planet, we need to see it as precious. We need to be aware, to open our eyes and be aware of that little bug that's on the flower. Be aware of what the leaves are doing, how this tree is faring. We've got to take care of everything. I mean, there's... That sense and stuff I read and and way I feel that way myself, largely. But um, so the crisis forces you, not force, but opens up different looking, different sense of who we are in in our life and what we're up to, and whether we question enough. Or do we really need 5G? Do we really need another device that reads people's emotions? Do we really need all these insane things like computers on our eyeglasses or something? No, we don't need them. Mm. I mean, I grew up without a phone or a television, let alone anything else. And we certainly were fine, you know. Do you think this hankering comes from some deficiency in other areas of life? You know, that this, this hankering for more and more technology and in that area of life, you know, sensory, mental extensions and so on, entertainment, that it may, do you think it comes from a sort of lack in the, in the culture or like, you know, what, why that obsession? It kind of goes beyond just curiosity and invention. It, it, it's become dysfunctional, it seems. 
I think the thing, I think the uh, technology is addictive. Mm. And I'm, because uh, it's, I see people addicted to it. I mean, in the sense of it's their life is all about it. And and it goes forward with this relentless pace of speed. It's always a new thing, a new thing, a new phone, a new this. So it keeps you in the loop somehow. Except people in my generation are not there. We don't care. You know. mm. We don't aren't interested in it. Mm-hmm. We came along too late, you know, to be that age when you are just curious about everything, I suppose, and want to be like everyone else. I don't want to be like everyone else, really. But it's so it's it's a generational thing. Mm-hmm. said that um, when there was polio when there was the polio epidemic it was similar in a way wasn't it? I mean it was a different type of it was passed from person to person in a different way but people were also restricted in their actions and play and all of these things and when the vaccine came everyone was really unified in celebrating that. It was mostly children because Mostly children. And um was it was water that was the medium that carried it. Mm-hmm. So if you went swimming, and now it's the air carrying it. Yes, that's right. So and it's a less unified celebration of a vaccine. There's a lot of suspicion of you know authority figures and of science and mm. you know a lot of um, shaky lack of trust really. But this is spread by. The- Social media, which is this this um, very I find in many ways such a dangerous thing, because it seems to it spreads uh, negative parts of human thought and um, that part of uh, part of us that is fearful or distrustful or blaming it's not that uh, it's not that you should believe everything but we lost our ability to listen to our leaders or our scientists or whatever and, and hear the truth hear that they are telling the truth they're not they're not interested in um, you know, fooling us or something that's what troubles me I hear these very earnest and hard-working, truthful people, and they're being um, they're being d- depicted as as sort of almost evil, mm-hmm. or got some nasty sort of uh, intention behind what they're saying, and that it, that phenomenon. Um, of disinformation and conspiracy theories and all of that is oh, it just gives me the creeps. It just is, seems to cut into all that is good about people in society together. Anyway, I find it very troubling. Mm. And Trump, of course, um, enabled it massively, but but he came into a. He was able to do that. It's already. So, that part of our modern technology is very negative, and it's dragging us back, backwards. I think, rather than 
finding a place where we can join together. Yeah, I heard it described, um, like for example, when you're growing up in Britain, there's the BBC, mm-hmm. and you know there's a few different channels, and you know some gradually other radio stations, but there's and TV stations, but you know people were kind of on the same page, and mm, journalists, everybody listened to the same news. Everybody listened to the same news. Uh, mm-hmm. journalists got uh, training. People knew they weren't perfect, but they knew that they were trained to try to get to the bottom of things and mm-hmm. like this, you know. So there's there's an advantage to that, but I guess there's, there's a couple things. One is that um, that's in Britain, but then in another country, people would be getting different news. And so then people, you know, countries would be in conflict with each other, partly because of the information they were getting, you know, because we, we act on the information we have and we, we have opinions and views largely based on the information we have. So if we're getting different information, mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to live together and really mm-hmm. make, make, uh, decisions together. And so, now there's many different news sources, and I, I think the upside, you could say, is that things, some things are being reported and investigated that were, were blind spots before. You know, governmental deceptions and corporate deceptions and so on. Mm-hmm. So people are very wary. Yeah, yeah, um, I, know. I hear what you're saying. And of course, the the downside not everybody is, is truthful and honest. No, and not not all authority figures have been truthful or honest. So that there is a bit of a, you know, like if a child is lied to, it'll be harder for them to trust. You know, like the call for good leadership, but is there isn't there isn't a lot of good leadership. Mm-hmm. But good leadership isn't just taking command and. Being in charge, it's something else. It involves being what you were talking about, civil discourse, and yeah. it involves a lot. There's there's not many people who could step up to the plate and be a good leader. Mm-hmm. And there's some terrible leaders in the world today. They're not leaders. They're opportunists. Yeah, whatever. And. Um, that's a part of it, but everybody else is also a part of it. Uh, There's a, a huge discussion, which we can't really... Yeah. ...incorporate. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I, I, you know. I guess I just, yeah, to bring it to, bring yeah. it to the present time, isn't it? Yes. Like, here we are. Yeah. From, from the time you were born, and before, of course, mm-hmm. um, through the explosion of the baby boomer generation and this expansion of possibility in the world and technology and communications and, you know, coming all the way to COVID mm. and how that's making us look, look back mm-hmm. at, at those skills that our ancestors had, which they consider just very run of the mill, probably things to be doing, <laughs> which are very wonderful now because we've lost mm. them. Um, and to this point of, you know, from, from that unified Britain all the way to the connected but ununified world and what might unification looks like, what might unification look like if it's not imposed top down, if it's not sort of standardized colonial, you know, what might, what might it look like to be Really, unity and diversity as a planet, and not just humans, but all the other beings here as well. It seems like this is the huge challenge and call of our time. It is. I don't know if we're capable of it. I don't truly don't know. I don't think anybody does. That's it's no. like the, it's that moment in the story, in a sense, mm-hmm. isn't it, where mm-hmm. you just don't know if it's going to work out or not. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, it's been really good talking to you. Yes. Is, is there anything else you wanted to, to add? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been good to talk to you about it. Really, uh, 
it was felt very close to you going through this mm. that you would be interested in my opinion or story yeah I am I yeah. am so I really appreciate that well it was really good to talk to you mom yeah and thank you for Likewise. being on the show Throw that in at the end. Thanks for listening to the Story Paths podcast. If you liked it, feel free to leave a review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part... I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close. <laughs>